we're dealing with the whole issue of how we can feel inadequate because it seems that we're under siege. If you have a look in the media, if you look at the platforms that some of the political parties are developing, if you have a look at what's going on elsewhere in the world, it seems sometimes as if it would be much safer for us to simply stay inside these four walls and associate only with other Christians, and particularly Christians who come to our own church. And we see every week now moves by politicians to reduce religious freedoms in our own nation. Recently, of course, the Queensland Parliament passed legislation that will allow abortion right up until birth. You know, there's a real irony in this. Some of you would have heard of Zoe's Law. Has anyone heard of Zoe's Law? Yeah. Yeah? Um, one of the big issues that some of our legislators have got to face now is that a lot of people consider that a baby in the womb who is older than 24 weeks is a human being. And the idea of Zoe's Law was to actually enshrine in law an offence whereby if somebody kills a baby in the womb, 24 weeks or older, it's actually treated as murder. And uh, the problem that the legislators have is that although they're sympathetic towards this law, they don't want it to interfere with what they call a woman's right to choose, that is to choose someone else's death. They don't say that, of course, but that's the truth. So, Reverend Fred Nile, he's a great Christian leader, who's in the upper house in the New South Wales Parliament, has had a couple of tries at getting so-called Zoe's Law through the Parliament. It hasn't yet gone through, but there's a possibility that it will early next year. But there are going to be so-called safeguards in that legislation to protect a woman's right, nevertheless, to kill her baby right up until birth. Uh, the Queensland Parliament is soon to um, consider legislation legalising euthanasia. It's been legalised already in Victoria, as we know. So there are lots of things happening that we know are totally inconsistent with God's heart. They're inconsistent with His Word. And in fact, as far as God is concerned, this country is full of murderers. Either people who actually carry out abortions or who are associated with it, or who facilitate it by passing legislation. But of course, they don't realise that. However, the effect on the church can often be that we feel under siege. Uh, the federal government, the, the Labor Party, they promise to remove the current exemption that Christian schools have to discriminate in employment and only employ Christian teachers. Their argument is you don't need to be a Christian to teach science or, or mathematics or geography. Now, of course, what they don't understand, it's not just about what you teach, it's all about who you are. That's why Christian schools want to employ Christian teachers. Because kids in school pick up a lot more than geography or mathematics. They actually pick up a way of living from their teachers because their teachers are role models. Unfortunately, our politicians don't understand that. But you know, the Bible tells us that 
God eventually blinds the eyes of the wicked people so that they actually cannot see the truth. The problem is, though, we sometimes feel as if the whole church is under siege and that then negates this community gospel. It negates our empowerment to be out there, outside of the four walls of the church, being used by God as his ambassadors to bring people to a knowledge and understanding of the truth. And so this is one of the things that I started addressing just two weeks ago. And I want to continue to address it. And it's all around this theme of what some theologians call faithful presence. And in a nutshell, it's faithfully representing God no matter where we are, no matter what our circumstances, no matter who it is we happen to be with at a particular point in time. Faithfully representing God just as an ambassador faithfully represents his or her country. Very briefly, last time we focused on the idea that God allows all this stuff to happen. We can look around the world and we can wring our hands in desperation. And you know, some people would argue that it's all part of God's plan. I listen to a lot of podcasts, as you know. I was listening to some podcasts this morning. And I listened to one by a very famous, famous preacher. He's got a television program and everything. And he actually said that God has let all this happen because he wants to teach you something. I'm sorry, but that is wrong. It was never, ever God's plan that there should be suffering in the world. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, it was never, ever God's plan that there should be any suffering in the world. He gave us dominion over everything that he had created except over one another, because we're supposed to be submitting to one another. But he gave us dominion over everything that's over sickness and over disease and over hurt, over all suffering. It was never God's plan. God never makes you sick. God never causes you to have an accident because he wants to teach you something or because he's just simply capricious and wakes up one day on the wrong side of the bed and simply decides he's going to give Rodson Hill a bad day. <laughs> That's bad theology. Unfortunately, I hear it preached over and over again. I'm sure the people who do it, if they sat back and thought about what they really meant to say, they wouldn't say it because it's actually an insult to God. God is good. There is nothing bad in Him. And in fact, it says, I hope I've still got a voice by the end of this. It says in the book of James, I think it's verse 13 in chapter 1, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now that word tempt there, as it's, as it's translated in many different versions of the Bible, possibly is not the best uh, translation. Because the, the word tempt, the Greek word there is about trials, 
It's about experiences. The reason why James is at pains to say, let no one say that God tempts us, he's pointing out there that our experiences, the trials that we go through, they are not caused by God. God does not cause babies to be born deformed. God does not cause sore backs, early deaths, cancers. I remember once a wonderful Christian family totally traumatised because wife and two daughters, they went back to, to Africa. They were migrants from an African country. They were all killed in a car accident. And I even heard the husband say, these were such beautiful people that God wanted them in heaven to be with him. Sorry. It's just wrong. You know, well, that one in particular, you know why? God's got you already. Doesn't the Bible say we're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus and Jesus himself is seated at the right hand of the Father? So how far away from the Father are we right now? That far. But at least we're no further than the body of Jesus away from God. And I've heard people often, they're trying to comfort those who mourn and will say, you know, your wife was such a beautiful person, God needed another angel in heaven. No, no, no. Never let it be said that God tempts anybody. He can't. You know why? Because there's no evil in him. There's nothing bad in God. Anyway, I spent plenty of time talking about that two weeks ago. I just wanted to remind you, because as I said, even this morning, world-famous preacher said it, and it's wrong! It's wrong. You see, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world which has been marred by sin. And some people laugh when you say, well, the problem everywhere and all the time is sin, but it's the truth. And bad things happen to good people, not because it is in God's plan, but because we live in a fallen world. Now you might ask yourself, I don't know, maybe I'm going to preach on this all day today, but I don't care. Some people might say, well, why doesn't God just intervene and fix it? I'll tell you what, he gave us dominion. It's up to us to take dominion. Helen's not here this morning. She laughs every time I revert back to Genesis chapter 1. But it is so important because Genesis 1, 26 to 28, God blesses Adam and Eve and he gives them dominion. Go and fill the earth, he says to them. In Genesis 2, 15 and 18, that's where God actually gives Adam and Eve the role of cultivating the garden, developing the earth. In Genesis 3, verse 18, I think it is, that's where Adam and Eve are hiding from God because they feel the shame of sin. That's important, but equally as important is the fact that it records for us there that God walked 
in the garden in the cool of the evening simply to be with them. And God has never changed. His heart has never changed. He's never, ever, ever withdrawn dominion from us. He's never, ever actually withdrawn our role to develop the earth from us. And He's never, ever said, I will no longer walk in the garden in the cool of the evening simply to be with you. But what happened when Adam and Eve sinned was we gave up dominion. We handed over dominion to the devil. And you can rest assured that God's heart is anguished when he sees bad things happen to good people. So if we feel under siege as the church of those who follow Jesus Christ, let it not be said that it is God's doing. It is at least in part the doing of people whose hearts have been given over to their evil ways. And it is at least in part a result of the fact that we have not taken dominion. We haven't taken dominion over circumstances. We haven't taken dominion over the evil that exists in the world. But we have the power to do it. Remember when Jeanette led communion this morning, his body was broken that ours might be made whole. And his blood was shed that our sin might be forgiven. And when our sin is forgiven, we are fully empowered, as Adam and Eve were, in the Garden of Eden before they sinned. They were empowered to tend the garden. They were empowered to have a personal, continuing relationship with God. They were empowered, in fact, to live forever, absolutely and totally free of sickness or disease accident or any of those things and when we really understand what it means to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ we're fully redeemed we're fully reconciled to God and positionally we're back in the garden of Eden before there was any sin committed and that's worth meditating on that is worth meditating on so don't say, God did it. I was talking to a man who's something of a mentor to me. He's um, very prominent in his denomination. Being a very, very successful uh, businessman. He lost it all actually in the global financial crisis. But he's bounced back. <coughs> man I look up to. And we were talking about healing and he shocked me by saying well, you just pray and maybe God will heal and maybe God will not. No, no, no. God never says no to healing. He never says no to healing. We spoke earlier in the year about some of the reasons why healing doesn't come instantaneously. But God never says no. All his answers are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. He never ever 
says no. So yes, we are under siege. The church is under siege. All around the world the church is under siege, but it is not God's plan and it is not God's desire. We have dominion. You know, sometimes it's easy to react to the idea of being under siege by retreating into a ghetto. And uh, you know that, that one of the values that Ignite Life Church has is that the purpose of Sunday is Monday. That we want to be equipping you for the works of service that God has set you apart for outside the four walls of the Ignite Life Community Hub. But you know, it would be so easy for us to kind of just survive Monday through Saturday, looking forward to being here together in our little ghetto. And, uh, you know, we could come down here Wednesday nights and, and feel safe here in our little ghetto. That's literally the meaning of a ghetto, by the way. A safe place. It's a safe place where you retreat and you kind of batten down the hatches so that you don't have to relate to people outside. And, you know, for many people, and, and some churches themselves are like this, because your whole life ends up revolving around the church. I've heard pastors say Sunday is the main thing. I'm sorry to say I don't agree with that. I don't think it's any less or more important than Monday. Not, not in God's eyes, it's equally as important. Because everything that we do, God could treat everything as important. It's all important to Him. There's nothing that is trivial in God's eyes. And you might have heard these verses that I'm going to read from the book of James in relation to faith and works preached on in the past. But I want to look at it from the perspective of our, our works. It's primarily being an ambassador for Christ. It's not just or even so much as doing good things like maybe taking a, baking a cake and taking it over to your neighbour although if I baked the cake and took it to my neighbour they might not feel blessed but <laughs> if Jeanette baked a cake and took it to her neighbour they might feel blessed first cake I ever made was the shape and weight of a brick <laughs> and I put it in the compost heap and it didn't break down in the compost heap so it wasn't really too much of a success I hope the one I made today the, the paleo, gluten free, vegan etc etc cake isn't like that but I didn't have time to slice it to see so anyway but this, this thing about works and I know I remember David telling me that Martin Luther had a problem with the book of James apparently Martin Luther didn't even think it should be in the Bible. Because his view, of course, that we're saved by grace and grace alone. That there wasn't a place for all this stuff about works in his um, understanding of, of faith. But you see, it really depends on what do you mean by works? 
You mean getting really busy and handing out free food or providing some kind of social service that the government is not doing a real good job of? But you know the works that are talked about in the book of James, it's living out your life as an ambassador for Jesus Christ. My works as a Christian is something as simple as, for example, the way I relate to my wife in public. Because marriage is intended by God to be a reflection of the relationship that He wants to have with the church. So an important work for me is to make sure that when people see Jeanette and myself together, it actually points them to Jesus Christ. And I'm sorry to say it doesn't always. Excuse me. Yeah, you might like to have a confidential talk to Jeanette later, but make me a cup of coffee first. Right? Our works can be something as simple as standing up for the truth in a polite and courteous way in our workplace. And I've done that once or twice. Our works might be simply answering the questions that a work colleague has about our faith. I spent half an hour one day last week, my colleague who's a Sikh, he wanted to ask me some questions about Christianity. The big question he had was, if you all believe in the same God, why are there so many denominations? So we talked about the creed that actually brings us together, that unifies us. And that the many different denominations, nevertheless, they're brought together in unity by the creed, even though different denominations have a different kind of culture, a different kind of flavour. And we talked about the creed, and we talked about the fact that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to the Father is through Him. I was able to do that because I've got a good relationship with him. He came to me with questions. That's the kind of works that is being referred to in the book of James. You see, it's living out the faith that we have. That's what James is talking about. And he says here, James 1, uh, 22 to 27. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and, do, and is not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he is. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspoiled from the world. James 2, verses 14 to 26. What does a prophet, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works, well, I don't. No? It's all right. Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, 
depart in peace, be, uh, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? So if we don't actually live out our faith, if we're not actually an ambassador for Jesus Christ, then our faith is a dead faith. And it's not just feeding the hungry, looking after the destitute. Our works consist of every thought and word and deed as Christians. I want to move on briefly and talk about one other aspect of being uh, under siege. If I can make my thing go there. Often uh, we get a sense when we're under siege that we're on our own. And uh, I know that that's not necessarily a good feeling. And uh, we want to be accepted. We want to make a mark on the world. And uh, often, in order to sort of minimise the siege effect, we make friends with the world. And there are whole churches that do it. And look, I think a church should do what God has called it to do. It's not for me to judge. But in the book of James, we are warned about friendship with the world. And uh, if you want a kind of theological take on this, what I would say is this. Friendship with the world, theologically, consists primarily of us taking on board secular humanism. Now, that's a fancy sort of term, but I see secular humanism creeping into the church time and time and time again. Secular humanism, of course, essentially says that we can solve all of our problems. I'm all right. What's right for me is right. What's true for me is true. It's okay for you to believe what you believe, but it's also okay for me to believe what I believe. There is much in the world that is inconsistent, totally inconsistent with the Word of God. And you see... God has never said come out of the world. He actually told Israel to come out of Babylon, but that's um, a spiritual, uh, soulish kind of thing. We're, we're stuck in this world physically. You know, I work out there. I work five days a week. Uh, many of you are not working in Christian organisations. Some do. Mark, for example, works in a Christian school. Jeanette works in a Christian school. But most of us don't. Most of us don't work in Christian occupations. We are in the world. Certainly we're not meant to be of the world. So we need to beware if we feel we're under siege not to try to make ourselves a small target by taking on board the world and assimilating it. There's a lot of... Uh, we don't have too much time left this morning, but... I got into a bit of an engagement with a very well-known pastor on, on Facebook. 
who quoted one verse out of Isaiah saying we should look after all the refugees. That's not biblical. Not the way he wanted us to look after the refugees. Because actually, if you have a look at the full Old Testament treatment of what they called sojourners or foreigners, they didn't have any rights to own land. They had a right to life. They had a right to share in the tithe of the third year. And Israel was told, don't marry them either. Social justice actually is not a biblical concept. Justice is. And I'll tell you why social justice is not a biblical concept. Because it almost always requires us to define someone as rich and therefore bad and to take money off them and give it to someone else. And all you do by that is perpetuate the culture of poverty. And I'm not the only one who's come to that conclusion by the way. So I'm not the only nutter on this planet who doesn't believe in social justice. Because it's not a biblical concept. But let me tell you, it is all through the church. God is a God of justice. You know what? Go read the parable of the talents and you tell me, does God start us all out in life equally? He doesn't. He doesn't. But he treats us equitably. That's a biblical concept. But this, this notion, there are whole denominations that have got so caught up in social justice that they don't even operate on the basis of the word of God anymore. Whole denominations. It's one of the worst things that's happening in our church today. Now, it doesn't mean to say we should not have compassion on the poor. But having compassion on the poor is not making them dance to our tune so that we will feed the money every now and then. And what tends to happen with governments that in our modern history are becoming more and more socialist inclined what they tend to do is take money from people who they define as being rich and then if you will dance to their tune, they'll let you have some. And anybody who's been on New Start Allowance or any of those schemes will know you've got sometimes dozens of criteria that you have to tick off. You've got to dance to their tune. That was never, ever, ever God's plan. For any of us. He wants us to have freedom. So beware of friendship with the world. I'm just going to read this passage from the book of James. Verses 1 through to 11. And then we better break for some community time. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure? That war with your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive. You murder... I've lost my place. And I was having such a good time. You ask 
and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is no one lawgiver. I beg your pardon. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? So here is a warning. If we feel we're under siege, we're not intended by God to make ourselves a small target by befriending the world. We're to resolutely live out our Christian faith on the basis of His Word. And it'll take courage. And Jesus promised that persecution would come. That's the one thing that salvation does not save us from. We have healing. We have financial prosperity. We have social, social wealth. All these things. But the one thing Jesus said that will come is persecution. And we have to resign ourselves to that. But our comfort is this God who loves us so much that he gave us his only son that we might not perish but have everlasting love. 